All right, it is time for the burning platform this morning. As it is every Thursday, we check in on all the big stories in the news. We check in on current affairs. We talk about the uh, people, the places, the things, the, the the economy, the society, the politics. And Pumi Mashiko is here with me this morning. Look at Pumi Mashiko, empty chair. No, here's Pumi Mashiko. There she is. There she is. <laughs> Ah, we're still trying to figure out these cameras, and Canton is meant to be in that empty chair. That empty chair. Oh, there he is. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Let me show you this. I can do this properly. There's your chair. You can go and sit in it. <laughs> I'll introduce you to our guest in just a moment. Uh, Canton has appeared all in black, as is per usual. No. Very good. No, right next to me. I can yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. They can actually they can lash out at each other. Yeah. All right, so we got lots to talk about this morning, and there's um, there's always plenty to talk about. There's never a dull week in South Africa. We're back to cholera, the age of cholera. I mean, it's just so embarrassing and upsetting, but we'll talk about that in a moment or two. We've also got an author here who I'm very excited to have on the show, and somebody whose work is well-known to many South Africans, certainly literate ones. Johnny Steinberg is the author of several books about everyday life in the wake of South Africa's transition to democracy. He's a two-time winner of the Sunday Times Alan Payton Award. And Pumi, you said there was a nice spread in the Sunday Times this week um, on the new book. (laughs) An inaugural winner of the Donald Wyndham Sandy M. Campbell Literature Prizes. Uh, Also, until 2020, was Professor of African Studies at Oxford University, no less, he currently teaches part-time at the Council on African Studies at Yale. Isn't that incredible? At the Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies. And is a visiting professor at the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research in Johannesburg. The reason we've got him here is because he's written an amazing book called Winnie and Nelson. And it is all about the marriage of Nelson and Winnie Adizela Mandela. And uh, obviously, there are plenty of things to unpack there, so we won't waste any time. Johnny, it's very, very nice to have you here. Thank you for coming. Good to see you. Yeah. So uh, first things first, um, congratulations on the book. I mean, it must have been a hell of a project. Uh, It was a a very exciting project. Um, It was uh, three and a half to four years of full-time work, and I loved every moment of it. Um, It was a, a journey of discovery. So, I mean, COVID helped, right, in terms of time and research. COVID helps. I was locked away with nothing else to do day in and day out. My God. All right. And, and in terms of this, this is a monster mammoth project to undertake because there are so many chapters and there's so many aspects to this relationship. And in so many ways, I think it made South Africa an even more interesting place. I mean, on their own, Nelson and Winnie are quite something, but to look at them as part of a collective, to actually observe them from their early romance into their political union, into their separation, the fact that they were so, you know, distant from each other and so incapable of being around each other all the time. And then there was the, the little bit of time that they had with each other. And then, of course, um, post-freedom. What's going on there, Canton? What are you doing? You, you are being such a disruptor such, this morning. So disruptive. Like, WhatsApp's coming in Tumi. and out. Tumi keeps poking me from the Pumi. side. Who the hell is Tumi? Who's Tumi. And, and you brought an imaginary Ryan, get in, yeah, get in here and just turn, turn this, uh, this thing of Canton's off. Jesus, I don't know why I'm having to hear everything in echo. I'm trying to introduce our guest and we're, we're messing Help around. Canton, please. Just turn his sound off there. Thank you. Oh, my God. Is that all it took? One tap from Ryan. So, Johnny, as I was saying. That's why he gets the big bucks. So, the, 
the, the marriage is, is one aspect to this, but then there's this divorce at the end and a very bitter and acrimonious one at that and very public. And of course, all of Winnie's shenanigans, both pre and post divorce, which are worth discussing too. Uh, there's a, there's an absolute smorgasbord of material here. But, but to go back what you were saying at the beginning, a book about a marriage and a country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, Really, the two protagonists, Nelson and Winnie Mandela, lead lead me there because they very self-consciously wanted their marriage to embody a struggle for freedom. They they wanted the whole country's story to be told through their marriage. You know, from the earliest days, they they were beautiful. They liked cameras. They mm-hmm. were ambitious. They they understood that their marriage was a political asset, and that you could a political asset, and that you could you could tell a a freedom struggle through the relationship between them. Um, And really they were right. I mean, that marriage in the 1980s was probably the most famous marriage in the world. And it was inseparable from South Africa's struggle for freedom. And and it was such a simple story. It's that this, this wonderful couple has been torn asunder. One of them Mm -hmm. is in prison. The other is banished. And the day they get back together is the day their people are free. And so the story of a marriage and the story of a people become one. They they put it out there like that and and they succeeded. But with a twist in the tail, they they lost control over the story. They lost control over the story of what their marriage was and what their country was. Um, And to write a book about them, that's a gift because you can – you know, a writer's always looking for a frame for for something that contained a big story. And and that marriage really does contain a big story. It's about two huge larger than life people, but it's it's about a country over the course of a century. And and that marriage allows you to um to to take in that expanse of of uh, you know that uh, that bigger story. What do you mean they lost control of the story? Well, one of the things that happened is that while Nelson Mandela was in prison, um, he and Winnie grew politically estranged. But in a very strange way, because Nelson didn't know for a long time. You know, when you're locked up in jail, you lose touch with many things, including what's happening in your wife's head and your wife's life. But by the 1980s... And in her bed. <laughs> well, that's another story we can get to. I mean... We a, have to. We that's have the to, part yeah. of the salacious <laughs> gossip I'm here we, for. We will definitely get <laughs> it's, there. It's, I'm only here for the salacious gossip. <laughs> <laughs> but by, by, well, before we get there, by, by the 1980s, Nelson Mandela's greatest fear was that his country would descend into civil war because he felt that if there was war, it, South Africa would never recover from it. And, and he felt that his responsibility as a political leader was to ensure that there was going to be a negotiated settlement. Mm-hmm. Winnie Mandela by then felt the exact opposite. She felt that unless apartheid ended through a violent mass insurrection, it would not end at all. Um, and, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that behind his back, while going to see him in prison and playing the loyal wife, she is actually attempting an, an armed insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and he realizes this very late in the day. He realizes late in the day that his worst fear, his worst nightmare is in his marriage. Um, and, and so this, this marriage becomes much more interesting, much more dangerous, much more complicated than either of them imagined at the beginning. What a fascinating way to start this discussion. Cause there's so many different places it can go. Um, the fact that that they're also such different personalities, uh, I think, is fascinating. You also said that um, it wouldn't be the first. I mean, I'm I'm surmising it wouldn't be the first political union. Um, there have been throughout history powerful people who have come together, men and women who've decided to put the 
their political ambitions ahead of their own romantic ones. And there seems to be a lot of naivety around the fact that Winnie and Nelson were this loving couple. And they, they seem to also, uh, you know, people are, are doing revisionist history on this and saying, oh, well, you know, it was this beautiful story. But then, of course, all the difficulties of being in South Africa and during the struggle and all of that stuff, that was the real problem. That was what made their their marriage fall apart. But actually, as you say, it was from within. Well, I, I mean, the story of their courtship is 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 amazing, really. She was... Uh, you know, she was young. She was 20 years old. He mm-hmm. was 38 years old. He was nearly twice her age. He was a, a very famous lawyer, a very famous political activist, a very glamorous man. He wore bespoke suits. He drove mm-hmm. a fancy car. He was very flashy. He was married with three children, but was a notorious womanizer. I mean, Johannesburg discussed his sex life endlessly. <laughs> Um, he was driving past um, Baraguanath Hospital where he saw this stunningly beautiful girl waiting for a bus um, and said that he he was so taken that he wanted to turn his car around and go back. Um, but instead what he did is found out who she was and get her phone number. Um, and so begins their story. And her side of the story is she was an extraordinary, extraordinary young woman. I mean, besides being stunningly beautiful, she she, she was a... A woman in the 1950s who knew from a young age that she wanted to be a public figure and a political figure and to exercise power. And how do you do that as a woman in the 1950s? You, you've got to take the resources you have. And a resource she had was her beauty and her charisma and her sexuality. And she used that. And so while she was engaged to Nelson Mandela, she was engaged to another man called Barney Sampson. She promised both that though she was going to marry them hmm. and and she played them off each other but in a way Cleopatra that was... and Antony and, and <laughs> you know I mean that's what it is it's 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 Julius Caesar and and it's this incredible woman who who realized her gifts and deployed and used, them and it, but took herself to the edge of 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 distraction she what the edge of unacceptability so one of the things that she did is so she stayed in this this very austere Methodist hostel where you weren't allowed male visitors. Hmm. Um, so she would see Nelson in his office in Chancellor House, his law office in the evenings. Uh, but when he would go out to the boxing gym, which he did every evening, leaving her there, she would immediately see her other lover in his office. Um, she she was really she was really scandalous. Um, and and Nelson Mandela. So right from the start, there's no loyalty. Here. Well, I, I, that's not the way I see it. The way I see it is that they both. They're both pursuing their own agendas. They're very exuberant, exciting people. And and Nelson Mandela is absolutely in love with this audacity. He thinks it's extraordinary. And, and he, it is. He, he liked, he's throughout the 1950s, he goes for powerful women. He, Hmm. he, and, and, and when he is the most powerful, he's met. So they are very in love. What's happening between them is very electric. They are deeply attracted to each other. But I, but attraction is a complicated thing. And I think part of the attraction is that they understand what they're going to look like together in public. You know, they're both very, very ambitious people. They understand that their, their, their marriage is a, is going to be a thing and it can be a political thing. They, they know that from the start. Sure. I mean, what a, what an intro. Listen, you read the book and the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Mm. It's absolutely astonishing. You've got something to say. Uh, well, I, I do also <laughs> want to ask about your, source material and research and and how you went about that 
to to getting to the story that you eventually tell? So it's it's a long story over a long period of time. So there are different sources at different points. But let me just talk about two for, for now. So that story of of their courtship and how dangerous it was, how on the edge of unacceptable it was the only dangerous lie in his arms. <laughs> Told you I'm here for the salacious. <laughs> the only reason we know that story is is that Nelson Mandela was locked up in jail years later and wrote to his wife about it. He'd they would never have spoken about it openly if he hadn't been in jail. Hmm. And, and the reason why he spoke so honestly about it was because here he was locked up when he was on the outside. He didn't know what was going on with her. He was so afraid of losing her. And and the only way he had of keeping her was was through his letters to remind her how exciting things had been. You know, they were together wow. such a short time. They met in 1957. They married in 58. Uh, by 1961, he was underground. So there are these four short years, and for him, his life is embodied in those in those four years, and he's trying to preserve them in prison and trying to trying to take her along for the ride to get her to remember what it was like. And so he tells her, he, he reminds her in these letters of these unacceptable things that happened between them, just to keep her excitement up, to to maintain can, the love between I, them. Can I just ask you quickly? Was it always the plan to wait until they were both gone? Because you couldn't write this kind of thing while they were alive, and were there any people who didn't want to talk to you about this? Yeah, this book's impossible to write while they're alive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I only began, I, when I began writing this book, the idea was to write a book on Nelson Mandela uh, rather than his marriage. And, and the reason was that now that he was dead, I felt that it was possible for the first time to, to write about him as a rounded human being with his frailties, with the dark side, with everything that it, 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 if you'd done it while he was alive, it, it would have been, an attack on him sure. and, and maybe even an attack on the South African project. And, and I think people would have been upset about any portrayal of Winnie that wasn't saintly at some point just before she died. People, well, Winnie, were, people were treating her with kid gloves in, in certain quarters. Well, uh, there was these two opposites. Either people treated her with kid gloves or they demonized her. You know, she, she was yeah, either correct. A, a goddess or the devil. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I think that that both of those don't get her story. That it, it's much yeah. They're both very. It's a very binary uh, way of looking yeah. at, at a very complex woman. Yeah. And you you know, and there is also some talk in your book about the forces that were anti Winnie, at least in her mind, and to a large uh, extent, even within the organization, who saw the rise of her political kind of power, as it were, and tried to thwart it along the way. And some of those people, including a former president, <laughs> could not, cannot possibly be happy that you've written mm. this story in this way. Well, I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you, you raised that. So I, I think it's important to tell that story from the beginning because it really gives an insight to what an incredibly complicated person when he was. So in the early 1960s, Nelson Mandela went underground. He was caught. He was put on trial. There was the famous Ravonia trial. While that was happening, you know, being a, a, a really patriarchal man, he thought, I'm gone. I need to find a man to look after my wife and children. And so he, he approaches a distant relative of his, a man called Brian Samana, and, and instructs him to look after his wife and children. And within a short time, Brian Samana and Winnie are lovers. Um, and 
when he invites Brian Smiler, asks him to leave his own wife and children and move into the house that she shared with Nelson Mandela, which scandalizes the movement. They can't believe that she's doing this, but, but it, it goes on. And then it turns out that Brian Sumano is in fact a police informer. Hmm. Um, and two men go to jail as a result of him. Uh, one, one, uh, uh, Fakile Bam arrives on Robben Island screaming at Nelson Mandela saying, look at what your wife has done to me. And at that point, a delegation goes to her and says, you have to leave this man. We are telling you to leave this man. And she says, nobody tells me what to do. I'm staying with him. Um, such a, I mean, she really had, she was a very complicated person. She had no sense of self-preservation. That, that episode nearly destroyed her. It shaped her life in the 1960s. It, it made her isolated. It indirectly. Do you think she was a bad judge of character? I think that what happened with her is to go back to her childhood. She was one of 11 children. She was in a massively ambitious family. Her, what her family had done over the last two generations was extraordinary. They wanted the next generation to go even further. She had parents who picked winners and losers. Mm-hmm. And she understood that if she was a loser, she would evaporate. She'd be nothing. She had to be a winner. It was a very, very tough world to grow up in. Sure. And she also understood from a young age that to be a, a winner, she had to be inside her father's head and determine what was happening there. She needed to occupy space in somebody else's mental world. And she did with her father. She she became his prodigal son. He invested more in her than his sons. And it's something that he'd never imagined that he would do. So she she had this, just from a very tough childhood, she developed this power. But the downside of that power, the flip side of it, is that she could never be alone, not physically, but also not mentally and emotionally. She had to be in a boundaryless relation with another, as she was with her father when she was young. And so if you look at her political career, she is always moving into politics in a consuming sexual relationship with somebody else, always at every moment in her long career. Um, and Brian Samana is the first of many. They, they were literally inseparable for a few years. Um, wow. And so when she was told, leave this man, um, she couldn't. She was bound to him. Uh, you know, that's, she, she moved through the world with that sort of intensity. You, you, you're looking, uh, very in, in enthralled by the story, but I mean, a lot of it, you know, already. Yeah. But, um, it, it's fascinating actually listening to it from, uh, from your perspective and the very human insights that you're giving. My, you know, perspective on Winnie has always been very, uh, blatantly antagonistic towards her, Gareth. And yeah, as yeah. you, <laughs> as you know, from the, the very harsh things I had to say about her on Twitter, um, and her Ben 10, as in, uh, Dalian Porfu. And uh, the point, uh, the very personal uh, point of antagonism for me was the murder of Dr. Abu Aswat, who was a great friend of mine. And it's very clear to just about everyone that Winnie's role in terms of his murder was absolutely pivotal. And, you know, so this idea of complexity at the same time being someone who actually conspires to assassinate someone who is in fact being close to you and close to the movement. Um, how do you actually reconcile that stuff? So I, I completely understand your deep anger given where you, you come from. You know, my, my position is, is different. I, you know, I'm taking in the whole of an 80 year life. Um, and for me as a, as a writer of that life, I mean, of a marriage in it, to reduce the whole life to what happened in the late 1980s is, is wrong. There's, there's so much else there and there, there, no, isn't, there is an extraordinary but, woman there. So, but, so, but just give, give us a sense of where that comes from in terms of the, the overall, uh, story arc that we're talking about. Well, <laughs> um, 
I think he's being very calm. Give him a chance. Go on. <laughs> I put me stop interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> so I I I don't um I don't sugarcoat what happened in the late 1980s. I I tell the story. Um and it's a horrific story. Uh, you know the 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 murder you're talking about is one of several. Um, but what I try to do is, is shed some light on why, on what was going on in that household, on, on why it became such a crazy household. Um, and it's, it's a long and complicated story and it's probably better told in the book. But, but one of the things that was, so Winnie and her football team, you know, lived, um, in this house in Orlando West and it was, it was a very unruly space and an undisciplined space. And within a short period of time, uh, people in that household had committed several murders. Um, and the result is that it, it, when he was never investigated, never touched, never questioned by the police, but members of a household were, they were taken into detention and many became informers. And by 1987, nobody in that household knew who anyone else in that household was or who they were working for. Um, it, it was part of its chaos and it kind of develops its own psychology as a collective organism and, and a crazy, dark, difficult it must psychology. There's been so much paranoia and, and, and suspicion. And, Listen, and, and, and was... at, at various points, it needed to find an external enemy in order to draw attention away from itself. And that's kind of what happened in, in, you know, in the famous incident where four, four young men, well, three young men and a child were kidnapped from a Methodist manse down the road. Um, it, it was this, this household for its very survival, turning its attention on another household, finding evil there in order to distract attention from its own, um, it, its own darkness, its own, hmm. it was really collapsing in a state of paranoia at that time. Jeez, so you, what a story. You, you were also talking earlier about how this book is also a study on the South African, um, landscape and a project as it were. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I have so many things to say, but let me just focus on one. Um, I mean, a really sad, a really sad aspect of Nelson Mandela's story is by the 1980s, he was, he was quite a remorseful man. He, he, he didn't like the life that he'd lived in the 1950s. He, he saw his children's lives and he didn't like what he saw. Uh, the, a lot of them were going wrong. A lot of them were ruined. He believed that it was his fault because he hadn't looked after them properly in the 1950s. And, and attached to the sadness about his family and, and the desperate attempt to do something to put it right was a sadness about his country. He was terrified of civil war. He, he was absolutely convinced that if, if, if South Africa descended into war, it would never come out again. It would just take generations to recover. He wanted to avoid that more than anything else. And yet he was in jail and isolated and increasingly out of touch. And I think that what he didn't know is that what he feared most was already happening. Uh, and to an extent it already happened. The, you know, the insurrections of the 1980s was a, a dreadful, dreadful time. I don't think South Africa has quite come to terms with it. And a great irony is that that insurrection had eaten its way into the heart of his family and he didn't know, you know, what was happening in his house in Soweto. You know, the extent to which violent death visited his house in Soweto, the, the, the extent to which it was a, it was a center and an emblem of, of, of the extent to which things were falling apart. He, he didn't know that until it, he didn't ever know that really. I don't think he could ever admit to himself exactly what had happened. Um, and so, you know, this couple begins, um, beautiful and young and attractive and, and very ambitiously want to embody a nation's story and their story. 
and it does, but in such a, such an uncomfortable way. Can, can we just fast forward quickly? A, a lot of people are saying, you know, this is a burning platform and we, we talk normally about current affairs and politics, but really this is an opportunity for us to just dig deep into such a, a pivotal relationship in South Africa's political past. And I can't help thinking that for most people, all of this is ancient history up to the moment where he's released. And then their relationship has to resume in some way. And this is the part that I think is most interesting because we all remember headlines. We remember the pictures. We remember the overall story of South Africa post 94, obviously when he was president, but Winnie's story kind of goes underground a little bit there. Like his went underground in the sixties and it only emerges again once he's gone, you know, where she appears as the loyal wife again, not the primary wife, but the next wife at the funeral. And for many people, the abiding memory of Winnie is this older lady who is mostly quiet and mostly doesn't say very much. And she was she, I mean, come on, towards the end, she didn't. <laughs> no, but you I, know, it was I don't better know. for her that she didn't say I, much. I don't know if she, if her story goes underground because there, there are many moments in the years, even as they were estranged and then divorced that, that she keeps popping up, right? I think, um, about her very famous inc- slapping incident with Tabombeki. Um, and all of those moments where Winnie mm. never quite disappeared into the ex-wife of the, this all right, well, amazing I, I person. Mean, I, I, I how, do, how do you characterize? I think towards the end of her, her life, her star rises again mm. among young people. And, and it does because she retells the story of her marriage. She's continually retelling the story of her marriage. She's so good at it. And the last story she tells before she dies in the last sort of six or seven years of her life, she says Nelson Mandela was locked away from the experience of being a black South African. I mean, she puts it as bluntly as that. She says they treated my husband like with cotton wool. Um, he didn't know what we were going through. And by the time he was released from prison, he wasn't the same Nelson Mandela. He was no longer the embodiment or the representative of his people. Whereas I, I was in the cauldrons. I, I was facing the fire. I, I am the embodiment of, of black experience in the late 20th century. I, I experienced it all. Um, and if I had been in charge in the early 1990s, we wouldn't have compromised. We would have fought on. Um, and so she takes this marriage. She takes their dual experiences and she turns it into a, a potent and volatile political story. And, and for a, for a young generation now who, who were not born when apartheid ended, who were not born when this couple separated, uh, but who are very disillusioned with the current order, it's, it's a very powerful story. Um, and, and, you know, that's why she is now an iconic figure, um, you know, in the populist left. Um, she, she was a genius storyteller. She, she, her antennae were so fine. She knew what was going on around her and how to place herself in what was going on around her. Well, I mean, Tula, Tula says in the comments here that, um, we love Winnie. We're celebrating her holistically with her flaws, her losses and her winnings. She became what she was because of oppression and she came out a winner. Pablo says Winnie was the backbone of the ANC. Stop profiting off bullshit now that they're gone. I mean, these are the, these <laughs> and there's, are, and there's another, you know, she, Winnie was a disgusting terrorist. Oh yeah. She, there we you go. You know, so the polar, polar views persist. I mean, you would have wanted, uh, you know, you would have had people who wanted a, a hagiography here. 
more than a. I mean, the point of the book was to slip into neither of those polar views. It, it really, it right. really would have ruined the book. She's too complicated to to tell a simple story about. So tell me about where it all started falling apart in their relationship, because that to me is the crucial bit that we missed because Nelson was so busy. He was becoming president. He was already president at a certain point. And then he just turned off the taps and completely disengaged from her. What well, happened I think there? Things, things started falling apart slowly and invisibly while he was in prison because really? you, you can't maintain a relationship for 27 years when you can't see one another. It's just not possible. Hmm. Um, so, it, it, it's it's sad, you know. What was happening in his mind was he understood that that his life had been broken by prison. You, you know, and it, it's hard to get your head around because he's becoming famous, he's becoming politically powerful, but he understands at every moment that that isn't a substitute for a human life. Um, and he's trying to to gather who he was before he went to jail because that's all he had, you know. And what he had was Winnie and 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 their kids. And in his mind, and you can see through his letters, his, his sense of her is becoming more and more idealized. Um, it's, it's no longer a human being in his mind. It's a fantasy. And you can see it's a fantasy in quite disturbing ways because in the same letter, she, he'll start a letter describing her as this 20 year old beauty that he met. And by the end of the letter, suddenly she's a 55 year old woman and, and thinking of old age. He's, time is scrambled in his head. So, He's more and more in love with her. She's more and more the center of his identity, but he's actually lost touch with who she is. And she can see this. She's on the outside living a life. You know, she, she's developed her own political identity. She has had several lovers. She has lived an adult life and she sees what's going on with him that, that he actually no longer knows who she is. Um, uh, she, she understands pretty early on how hollowed out the marriage has become, but then he's released from prison. And what they both want from the marriage is, is just completely polar opposites. She no longer has any respect for his politics. She has contempt for his politics by now. She, you know, she really does. She's certainly not attracted to him anymore. He's, he's frozen in time. He's an old gentleman from the 1950s. Um, she doesn't like that very much, but the marriage to him is her greatest political asset and she wants to keep it. Whereas for him, he believes that they both have an obligation to try and resume the relationship they had 27 years earlier. Um, and that's what he expects from her. And she will absolutely not give that to him. You know, she has another lover and she doesn't hide it. Um, and she ends up humiliating him. Um, you yeah, know, some very, him. some very difficult stuff happens in the early nineties. He's newly a very powerful man. Uh, he's his own psychological foundations by now are pretty fragile. And he begins to use his political power to try and put his marriage back together. Um, in, in ways that are quite uncomfortable. And so, for instance, at her kidnapping trial, um, a couple of her co-defendants and witness disappear, you know, the night before the trial has begun. He didn't order that personally, but people around him did. Mm. He did other stuff. He, uh, you know, he squeezed money from international organizations to, to fund her trial. Um, you know, when the Orlando West branch of the ANC did not even vote her onto the executive because of the Stompy affair, he summoned the leadership to create a new branch for her. <laughs> wow. Um, and so she could become sure. a chairman. So it, it's a very, it's a very difficult moment where he is, you know, he is Nelson Mandela. He's famous, but he's also been a prisoner for 27 years and is trying to find his feet, trying to find out what his life is about. And there's just this moment where he, he confuses the personal and the political. He he uses this political power to try and mend his personal life. And it's never going to work. His marriage is over, really. 
I wanted to find out whether you touched on uh, Mandela's uh, testimony at his divorce trial and whether you used that uh, in the book. You know, very I, interesting thing at the time was it was the first time that uh, mainstream media in South Africa collectively broke the law and published his testimony mm-hmm. at, uh, at at his trial. You know, I, I disagreed with that at the time. I thought that, you know, the strictures of the Divorce Act, which say that you shouldn't be um, publicizing stuff that goes on in divorce court. But he said powerful stuff there. And did you touch on that? And uh, I, I, des- I decided to, to end the, the main narrative of the book uh, uh, when they separated in 1992. And, and the reason was, the, I mean, the book is long. Um, and, I, and I felt that that is, that is really the moment that the marriage ended and the book is about the marriage. So... So the, the nuts and bolts day to day narrative ends in 1992. And then there's an epilogue, which, which sort of races through the next 20 years where I had a couple of things to say. So I, I, I think it, it, it was a difficult decision not to go into the 96 divorce, but I think it would have ruined the, the rhythm of the book. I, I think that it said mm. what it needed to say. Oh, maybe it's for a sequel. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there'll be plenty of appetite for that. Well, Johnny, I really appreciate you coming in to see us this morning, and I wish you well with the book. I'm sure it's going to be a runaway success. This is still one of those relationships, and people love a story with all the different little touch points in it. You've got rich material here. You've got amazingly interesting people, complex people, and you've done a tremendous job of researching the hell out of this too. So thank you for informing all of us. I mean, we're we're just thrilled to have had the chance to talk to you. Thanks for having me. It's been very good to be here. What a pleasure. Johnny Steinberg, everybody. And the book is called uh, Nelson and Winnie. You can obviously find it at good bookstores. Winnie and Nelson. Let me just get that right. And uh, you can good you can hear stores. all about all good bookstores and even the bad ones. And online. Right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Very, very good. Uh, thank you very much, Johnny. And uh, we've got the burning platform still to, to talk about. I, I want to quickly refer to a letter um, which came out. Uh, as a result of a discussion we had about the minimum wage the other day. I'm sure you saw it as well. Someone called Quibus sent us a letter, uh, Canton, and that's why I reference you here. Quibus said that he's very annoyed about the, the fact that this minimum wage thing isn't a bigger issue in South Africa. He himself has been hampered by lots and lots of things, including all kinds of onerous BE legislation. And I suppose it's, he's just agreeing with you but he wanted to know what your comments were on his own story. Just remind me of his own story, Gareth. All right, I'll read, I'll read you the email. Let me read you the email. Before you read the email, Johnny, please do stay with us because the burning platform is also about all of, all of our own views as well as what we know about the world. So we'd love to have your voice here too. Great. All right. So here's, here's part of it. He says, with regard to the conversation about minimum wage, I completely agree with Canton. Uh, minimum wage is one of the things that we use with bargaining councils, also just in a way, another way of minimum wage for a certain sector. See attached for electricians, and then he goes into some detail there. Um, it's a very, very silly system. We as small businesses have to continuously work our way around these rules. With triple BEE, first I had to make sure that I didn't go over the turnover threshold, managing our turnover to stay compliant. Now we have to manage a staff complement and stay under 50. I could have grown my business much larger if it wasn't for this. Once you go over the, th- the threshold, you are basically stuffed as you have to increase with just such a number uh, to be where you are and then keep things under the threshold. If they take triple BEE away, the unemployment will increase to 35% as most surely the BEE industry creates a substantial amount of work. 
in our growing economy or not growing at this point. If you open up pick and pay across from a spa, you cannot create wealth. You only share the same pot of money. I'm really tired of these rules and everything that they make us comply with as a small enterprise. So he wants to know what your thoughts are on that. Look, I think this broad agreement that most of us have on the overregulation, by and large, the market tends to actually sort itself out if you remove regulations. Now, you go back a couple of years, guys, you might remember, um, particularly in the retail space, whenever shopping centers were put up, we would have these exclusivity agreements that would come in. So you would never have a pick and pay and a checkers in the same shopping center because as part of the conditions they would put in place to be an anchor tenant, they would actually insist that it would be one or the other. So the market takes care of that. Well, yeah, and effectively what happened was we had the uh, the competition, competition tribunal, commission, yeah, which basically said, ah, this is uh, out of bounds, and which is why, by the way, in most shopping centers, game was never able to get a foothold. Game always had a presence outside of the regular shopping centers because of the fact that the big guys would squeeze them out. Uh, so I don't necessarily agree with this idea that you know if you're putting up a a, a, a pick and pay across from a spa that you don't create wealth, you only share the money. I think that, in fact, what you are doing there is you're having the net impact of the two competing against each mm-hmm. other and driving prices down, which overall is what we want. Or specialization. One exactly. of them starts to stock different yeah, stuff yeah, to the other yeah, one. Yeah, very much so. And I, I think that, you know, by saying that you shouldn't have that scenario, you're actually denying agency to the shoppers. But is absolutely right in terms of the overregulation. And mm. Pumi, we touched on this where, you know, we said that what's going to happen is that people are just going to set up a number of businesses, each of which, you know, is below the turnover threshold and yeah. each of which employs fewer than, than 50 people. People but, will find a way around it. Yes, but, but it's annoying. It's annoying because ultimately it's overregulation and, mm. you know, just the sheer effort that you need to put in in terms of keeping up with, uh, with Sipsi and keeping up with SARS and, and all of those. So it's nuts. It only works for big business, you know, but there the are a couple of, and when I read the email that came through, there were a couple of, and you touch on one of them, false equivalents, I think, in this email, right? So, of course, you want a pick and pay and a spa and a checkers across from each other. For one reason, they employ three times as many people, right? Besides the fact that they then uh, also drive down prices because they compete with each other. And th- there's a different thing. You know, I think most business owners want to see their businesses grow. Most of us want to see our businesses oh, grow. Sure. Right. And if growing our business means growing our turnover to a particular way, there are some who look at it and go, I would rather not deal with all of the, the regulation and all of this stuff. I would much rather have a lifestyle business. Right. And so my business has to be below a particular threshold mm-hmm. as long as it can live live my life. But then there are people who do want their businesses to have 4,000 people. And I have a sure. friend who has a business that big. And and they don't think about the the regulation as a hindrance. They think about how do well, I Well, they hire someone to make them compliant. Absolutely. That's all. They right? just hire so somebody they, and they give them resources. They, they, and they say, say how do it. I make... What I want from this business is X. And so to grow the business to this particular size, that's what it is. Well, but I do think... And we are in agreement that one of the biggest things that our government can do for small businesses is get out of the way of small businesses. All right. of the all yeah. of the forms, all of the regulations, yeah. all of those things. But we cannot then say, 
holistically throw the you know throw the baby and the water out because yes, we some can. of these things yes, we, can. we just talk about how the competition commission has actually made life better for all of us by allowing shopping centers to have competing stores in it the competition commission basically did something that sh- the courts should have done a long time ago Really? And they hadn't, but yes. the competition commission did the job. Can, can I move Regulation. us? Yeah. Can I move us onto something else that, while we've got Johnny here, I think could be quite interesting. I don't know if anybody saw the um, interviews with Fikile and Julius that were done by BBC Hard I Talk. I haven't seen the Julius. Okay, I so haven't I, seen the Julius. I, I just saw. saw the okay, one. so let's talk about the Fikile one for a start, because this is where Johnny might be able to give us some some sort of insight. I mean, the the modern ANC, and I don't expect you to be a to, to, to be a, a, a you know revisionist historian here or to try and predict the future, but the the modern incarnation of the ANC is so bereft of the sort of leadership that we had at the time of Nelson Mandela, and I don't think that's a controversial thing to say either. Um, we see Fikile Mbalula who can't answer a single question properly. He makes he makes an absolute mockery of the the entire interview process. Uh, you almost end up feeling sorry for the interviewer, which is something that should never happen. <laughs> and I keep thinking how adept Nelson Mandela was at handling the media. And he stood his ground and he said some unpopular things, which really true leaders should be able to do, should be able to say no more than just crowd please. And I even think about Winnie, who used to take huge risks with her PR, whether it was calculated or miscalculated, whether it was self-destructive. Or, or whether it was something that she'd come up with as a plan. What do, what do you make of the two of them and the way that they dealt with the media and what lessons could be employed by the modern <laughs> leadership of any of the political parties? Let's not just say the ANC. I haven't seen either interview, um, but I've, I've seen a lot of Fakila. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and you've seen enough. Oh, there are no surprises. More than we need to. <laughs> it's not like you're suddenly going to go, oh, wow, the guy's incredible. How uh, erudite. I mean, I think it's a question of quality. Um, okay. And, and, and the fact that he's up there in hard talk is a sign of the thinness of quality there. Mm, you know what it also is for me when, when you contrast those people? What Nelson Mandela had is he was a grown up. Firstly, <laughs> with very good, but with a point of view, he he had a point of view, and he was and and he was clear about what he believed in, and he was unshifting from those beliefs. Whereas Figile, on the other hand, wants to be a celebrity, and a lot of our politicians have become that, right? They all want to be celebrities and want to be seen in a particular way. Well, to anglicize, so always just to trying, anglicize his name. He's either fickle or he's facile. But to me, there's, there's, those are the two words that must make up some part of Gareth, his Gareth, I've got to take exception with something, though. Because, Go on. Because basically, I, I think, you know, singling out South Africa in this regard is just basically unfair. Because what we've seen globally is an overall decline in quality of leadership and the ability of well, people. Well, Joe Biden can't spit out a well, sentence. Well, exactly. So yeah. you just do a contrast between, you know, Obama, no matter what you might think of his, his, his policies, it's exactly what Pumi was saying. He was a grown-up, yeah, and he had the ability to actually conduct a conversation in a rational basis. You might disagree with what he said. Obama's a, a very good example. You contrast him with uh, modern-day successes, and uh, again, you know, you contrast all of the leaders that preceded Boris Johnson to Boris Johnson, and you know, another example of just how there's been an overall dumbing down of political leadership in in the Western world. And if you look at the grown-ups right now, the grown-ups really, where are they sitting? It's Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. it's Putin, 
it's uh, Narendra Modi. Those are uh, look at Ruta, serious people. Look at Ruta out in, in Kenya right now. That guy is so impressive in terms of the type of stuff that he's been talking about on on the global stage right now. So he was calling out the Western world to say, you know, we've given you a troika of African leaders to represent us. You instead want to engage with 51 of us at a time, and you want us to speak for one and a half minutes apiece and have a dialogue <laughs> with you. And it, it's the level of absurdity that we have right now in terms of the way in which these discussions get conducted. And let's also consider the role of the BBC in this. Okay. And <laughs> so we go back to the Elon Musk interview. Right. It's a very specific example. The interviewers are clueless. And, you know, to Fikile Mbalula's credit in this particular case, at the point at which he, he hit back with a series of, uh, of retorts that pointed out the fundamental hypocrisy of the West, what happens, as always with the BBC, whoops, looks like we've run out of time. Oh, so let's move on. Okay. To, uh, to yeah, I didn't else. even pick that up. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, yes, we recognize that our current crop of leadership by and large are buffoons. And I'm very happy to say that um, uh, in terms of Mr. Rasmatan or, and or Mr. Fiafoko, whatever he calls himself at any given stage. <laughs> but, you know, singling out our guys yeah. for the inherent stupidity. No, I, I think that, you know, we're kind of average in terms of global stupidity right now. Well, at least we're average at that, not below average. I think yes. we're below, but you think so? I cannot believe that we're going to miss this opportunity because we do have a person who's just written a book, who's just gone through three and a half years, you said, of research. Did you spend anywhere near twelve point five million? Oh wow, what a story, right? I couldn't. I couldn't. I, could, I just can't. I, we. I need to understand from somebody who's just. Had the fresh experience. <laughs> um, it, it's. I was surprised by the figure. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> That's a lot of money for a. So, all right. So, what I want to talk about here is is what Pumi and I were were uh, we were actually having this conversation before we started the burning platform this morning about how Herman Mashaba must be fairly desperate for some attention if he paid for this. Um. Frankly, uh, uh, but cannot imagine why he would have gone through that process. It, it's clearly an, uh, an exaggerated understanding of how the book market works in South Africa. Gareth, you've published how many books? Two. And, 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 yeah, I know you're talking to Johnny. He's got about seven out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I'm, I'm using you as, as a very good example because you're a person who has a fair amount of clout in terms of the, uh, the overall South African landscape, not just the media landscape. But you know as well that the number of people who go out and actually buy books. It's tiny. It's, it's absolutely tiny. And the, it's you tiny. Know, the possibility Just, of Poor that, Johnny's shaking his head. He's like, oh, God, three yeah. years. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 baffling. It it's baffling that he spent 12 and a half million on a book. I mean, I mean, it's so obviously not worth it. It's, it's, it's a strange judgment. You, you miss, I think you're missing the fact that when the statement came out from Mr. Mashaba, it did say an initial 12.5 million. Good Lord. You mean there was we, more? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. Wow. We, we've since not spoken about that. But when, when I saw <laughs> initial 12.5, I, I was, I'm still a little bit shook. Well, I hope you, I hope you end up making, uh, even a half of that. That would be very nice, Johnny. I mean, you've, <laughs> I'd be, I'd you've certainly, really pleased. you've certainly put in the work and you still have your credibility intact, yeah. which we can't really say about the other. I'll go and buy uh, myself author. a new shirt. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, that's a big story, and I think people are, are right to make a lot of noise about it. 
And by the way, I just want to call out everyone who's actually been sharing PDFs of the Reuters book. You know, yeah. we, we, Not we, on. we we constantly go on about the fact that, you know, we, we despise lawlessness. And I, I, I think there's been probably about a dozen people who've sent me PDFs of this stuff. I haven't mm-hmm. read it. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do get out to reading it, I probably won't buy a copy, but I will borrow a copy and read it. But I, I think it's absolutely wrong, guys. Don't share these. But we PDFs. have spoken about this on this show on countless times. South Africans say they don't like lawlessness. South Africans say they disagree yeah. with, but when it comes down to it, they will pay the bribe. They will inst- they will initiate the idea of paying the the copper bribe, and when the PDFs come around, they will share the PDFs. We say it, but we don't believe it. I think it's time we started actually walking that walk, guys. You know, really. No, I, th- I mean, as an author, does does this annoy you as much as it clearly annoys Canton? I should hope so, because this is your life. This is your bread and butter, right? Yeah, um, it 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 is. I, I think everybody should pay for their book. <laughs> Damn right, especially <laughs> for your borrow. book. No, <laughs> it's coming up. You, you know, again, if we want quality stuff, you've got to be prepared to pay for it. This is what I think people have forgotten. If you want good, good things, nice things, the reason that they cost money is because they're nice. <laughs> if you want shit, then go for the cheap and free stuff. So I do think I just one last thing on this 12.5 million. A lot of people are saying that it is his money and it is not state money. But I think what it does tell us about the handling of money from Mr. Mashaba is that he, he doesn't seem to have than the due diligence no. of what we should be paying for stuff. We spoke a little bit earlier. And do you about really this. want a guy who doesn't know and, the value of money running the country? And the I value so. of this money, right? This is also what it tells us. This little debacle tells us about this man is, is his view on the value of money and how it should be spent or even the due diligence of spending money on particular things. So yeah, it is his money. And now that we are being told it's a loan, hmm, I wonder if he did the fika of whether the man is going to be able to pay him back or is there something else going on there that we have not yet started thinking about? Well, I mean, also poor old Herman, he has to find a way of becoming relevant that doesn't cut down his his fortune by 12.5 he had the best opportunity to be relevant yeah he was actually an up-and-coming star in in the da he was mayor of johannesburg and Mm -hmm. and he completely fucked it up that's exactly right you know I, i was so sorry that i wasted my vote on him really well, uh, let me ask you this quickly when we talk about waste. Uh, waste water has killed 17 people in Hamans Kral in Pretoria. It's also a big story this week. Of course, it won't last very long as a big story. By next week, this time, it'll be forgotten. But this is another example of incompetence and a lack of diligence, maintenance, care, attention. It, it, clearly, the, the powers that be, whether they're at municipal level, provincial level, or at national level, are not really interested in the welfare of average South Africans. They're interested in whatever they can get out of the deal themselves. This is the kind of venality that we have become used to in South Africa. Well, there's no consequences, Gareth. No, no. no one is going to go to jail. No. Yeah, and no one is going to be fined. And it's part of a, of a global phenomenon. I, I don't know if you guys have been following the story about the eye drops in the U.S. that released the contaminated eye drops. No. Um, people have gone blind and people have died as a direct result of bacterial infections in eye drops. 
because of the fact that the company manufacturing the eye drops. I tweeted the story um, <laughs> uh, last week. People have gone, have lost their eyesight. They have died as a result of the uh, the infections. No one is going to go to jail as a as a direct result of this. Shout out to the Chinese in this regard. At the point at which someone tried to take baby formula and adulterate it, and and people end up dying, the person was promptly executed. Yeah, that's right. Which, which is the way it should be happening. But we we don't have consequences. So this goes back to our other discussion, which is <laughs> go off grid. So, you know, you need to manage your own water supply. You need to do, uh, take responsibility for the stuff yourself. Because if you are trusting the state to do this stuff, it's not going to come. And we're good at that as South Africans. I think that we're better equipped than the rest of the world to actually sort out this stuff for ourselves. But the majority, the majority of South Africans are going to have to trust the state, you know, in perpetuity for, for water. And the, for me, the car story is just terrible. It's, it's a very, very basic function that's gone wrong. Um, it, for, for some reason, for me, it's the worst story of the, of the last mm. few months. It, mm. it just, it absolutely shouldn't be happening. It's the most simple. No, but we've been saying this is, we've been saying this is going to happen for the longest time. Mm. So, because we've got like three minutes left in the show, mm-hmm. and because we are talking about lawlessness, Johnny, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about your other book. I don't know if it's still available in bookstores about the relationship of South Africans and the police. Uh, thin blue. Yes. <laughs> so that was a long, long time ago. In in 2005, 6, 7, I, I went on patrols with uh, South African police. Um, and one of the things I found was was how much... Policing only works when people um, consent to be policed. And if they don't trust the police, they don't consent. And so <clears throat> you have a patrol begins with a policing plan. This is where the crime house spots are. This is the place you should be. The police avoided those spots. <laughs> they tried to stay yeah. away. They didn't want to be among people. They didn't want to be among crowds because they would they'd experience hostility. So it was a, a real jolt that, that if police... How long ago did you write that book? Uh, it was published, I think, in 2007 or eight. So uh, clearly things have got a lot worse since then, right? Absolutely. Not better. Absolutely. And that consent to be policed and that kind of contract between society but and the police. But it comes from trust, Gareth. And if yeah. you don't trust the cops, right. then no, why exactly. would you do so? I mean, yeah. a lot of this is self-inflicted harm. It's not just that the public have become disenchanted with the police. It's that we've seen over and over again that lack of accountability that you spoke about just a second ago, Right. Yeah, I mean, so what, what's the next project for you? Because you've got so many plates spinning and you've got so many things that you could write about in this country, as we said about Nelson and Winnie, rich material. Well, the next project goes way back into the 19th century. It's about um, uh, the homosexuality of Cecil John Rhodes. It's oh. the connection between his private life and his life as an imperialist. Wow. Is there is there enough material for you to be able to? Oh, oh, oh I, I believe that there is. Really, I, this is going to be very exciting. Right. What an amazing! Uh, that's a mic drop moment where we can wait for the, the next book. You're going to have to come back for blind sure. history on that. Unbelievable! One. <laughs> I'd love to. Well, again, thank you, Johnny Canton Pumi. We will see you next Thursday for more of the Burning Platform. I'm hoping that there's a default in the US case. Just so you are know. you hoping for that? Yeah. No, because what happens happen. is when, when the bond market crashes, the stocks go up. And remember that I'm invested in U.S. stocks. There we go. <laughs> All right. Very good. I don't good. think it'll happen. A, a defaults on Canton's menu for next week. We hope no, no more cholera. That's all I'm hoping for for next week. Have an awesome day, everybody. We will see you on tomorrow's show at 6.